You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is the philosopher and historian Jonathan Ray, whose books include Proletarian Philosophers and Witchcraft, the Invention of Philosophy in English. He's been writing for the LRB since 1997 and has a piece in the current issue on the neoliberal economist, although we're going to talk about both those terms, Friedrich Hayek. It's a review of Hayek, A Life, 1899-1950, by Bruce Caldwell and Hans-Jörg Klausinger. Hello, Jonathan, and thank you very much for joining me. Good afternoon. So we have this new biography of Hayek covering slightly more than half of his life. It's over 800 pages long. If you had to describe him in two words, you'd probably call him a neoliberal economist, as I did when introducing him, but those are contested words. He died 30 years ago. Why should people still be interested in, in Hayek? Well, I think that's a good question. I mean, in some ways, he's the kind of person you might not want to bother with at all. He was a right-wing thinker, in some ways rather a petty right-wing thinker, born at the end of the 19th century and born in, and, and died in 1992, originally Austrian, but he became a British citizen in the, in the 1930s and in some ways a bit of an English patriot, a snobbish English patriot. Uh, he was a professional economist and his interest was in the theory of markets, of how capitalist free trade is a brilliant way of, for a society to allocate its resources where they're needed. And his legacy tends to get wrapped up in the word neoliberalism. And that word must be the word of the 21st century. Uh, and I, one of the things I, that became clear to me was that it's actually a very, very ambiguous word. I think a, a, a lot of us on the left have got used to using neoliberalism as a word for everything that's gone wrong in the last two or three decades, or the reason for all our disappointments that things haven't turned out. You know, we we might have thought ages ago that the world was going to become more equal and more just and more peaceful, and the fact that it hasn't, we put down to this thing called neoliberalism, which we equate with, I don't know, tax cuts and privatisation, and then with the rise of populism and authoritarianism and racism and and the deindustrialization of the West and the rise of globalization and of a tyrannical global ruling class. That's what we think of as neoliberalism, and it's become the kind of bogey of left-wing thought. It's become the name for everything that... It, it's become what we blame for things not having worked out as we would have hoped. And Hayek is, if you like, the master thinker of neoliberalism. And when you study his ideas and their ambiguity, you realise that neoliberalism is a much more complicated beast than most of us give it credit for. So you begin your piece not with Hayek, but with his predecessor and mentor, I don't know if we can use that word, uh, Ludwig von Mises. So why is it helpful to know about Mises in order to understand Hayek? Well, Hayek regarded him as the only inspiration of his life's work as an economist. And Mises is remembered as having sort of revived in the at the beginning of the 20th century the idea that the central concern of economic theory is to explain the market, the free market, and to draw a broad contrast between societies where the central institution is the free market and pre-market societies where exchange is very rare and it takes the form of barter rather than money-mediated exchange. And he was a huge enthusiast for this, um, what he saw as the great turning point in history when 
markets took over from feudal tyranny and, as he saw it, the individual became sovereign and tyrants lost control of life because the market had, as it were, a mind of its own. And so there was this connection in his mind between individual freedom and free markets and and seeing that as it from a classical liberal point of view, the idea of individual freedom as the ultimate good? Absolutely. And the factor that distinguishes him from previous liberals is that he was obsessed by socialism. I mean, I think for a lot of for a lot of economists until the 20th century, socialism was of marginal interest, but he was aware that it was a you know it was becoming a popular movement and was and that as he saw it it was threatening to take over the world. And so he saw it as his duty to uh, build up the arguments for markets against those of socialism. I think he may be really the first person to formulate the great political problem of the 20th century as being a battle between free markets on the one hand and socialism on the other. And I suppose it's important to talk about when he was formulating these questions. So this was immediately after the First World War, or was it? He started before the First World War, yes. You have this wonderful phrase, well, sort of wonderful phrase, sort of, right, that socialists, as Mises imagined them, were no more than reactionary fantasists, which is sort of the opposite of the idea of socialism as, as a utopian idea, that it's a question, for him, it was, it was looking backwards rather than forwards. Yes, they were looking backwards to a pre-market situation, and they, they didn't realise that that would involve reinstating the sort of tyrannies that flourished before free markets came into being. That was the way he saw it. It's also perhaps important to say that he saw it in a very moralistic way. It wasn't a sort of historical judgment about how first there was feudalism and barter and then there were markets and then there might be socialism next. He somehow did see it as a as a moral fight, a fight between good and evil. Um, and the funny thing is that then a lot of socialists rather... Uh, as it seems to me, uh, picked up on his moralism and started seeing... I mean, they, they obviously changed the polarity. They thought that socialism was virtuous and markets were evil. But I think uh, there's a third position that you shouldn't really think of it as a moral question at all, but rather as a historical one, which is, I guess, the position that I would adopt. And you describe his position as being that socialism is essentially authoritarian and that liberal freedoms are inseparable from capitalism. He had this idea that freedom of expression, in order to guarantee freedom of expression, you had to have private property or private ownership of the means of production. And these ideas that if you have private property and a, and a free market, then all other freedoms flow from that. That seems to be his idea. And it, and it is rather extraordinary that he didn't really take into account the extent to which market economies become dominated by monopolists and cartelists and and by inheritors of great wealth. I mean, his you could see that he always, when he was thinking of free markets, he was imagining, you know, little Robinson Crusoes who start out on their own with nothing and then they invent something and then they they invent something and society discovers it's something that it needs and so you get great dynamism in terms of uh, technology and uh, and I, 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 mean, I think the most striking thing about him is that he did live in a kind of rather, rather a fantasy world. He wasn't very realistic about what um, actually existing capitalism was like or at least if you pointed out to him that uh, there was a great deal of 
authoritarianism in free market societies, he would he would say, well, that's because they've been polluted by socialism, uh, and uh, he he had this this way of of, of thinking that. Um, which, of course, socialists have in a, in, a, in a mirror kind of way, that if you think there's something wrong with capitalism, that's because true capitalism hasn't yet been tried. Yeah, which is an argument that's more familiar from a, a defence of communism. Ab- absolutely, but, it's, it, but it, it, stri- it strikes me that it, it certainly has its place in, on, the, on the Misesian uh, right. Hayek, as a young man, studied with Mises in Vienna. Is that right? In the early 1920s, he... Yes, it was a bit, a bit of a strange situation. I mean, Hayek had he'd been in the army, he'd been to university, and it was after he got a job that he he started attending some seminars that uh, Mises ran. And Mises wasn't a, an academic at the time; he was a um, an economic advisor. But he had some bright people round to his office once a week to discuss the theory of markets. So it wasn't an academic relationship so much as a um, I don't know. It was a bit like people going to meetings in the Bank of England, I suppose. Um, it wasn't. He, so he 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 always insisted that it was a it was a misnomer to say that he'd been a student of Hayek, um, but he did attend his seminars and and initially he said he couldn't bear him because he was so standoffish and proud. But he was intellectually persuaded by what he by his enthusiasm by his enthusiasm, as I should say, for for, for markets and for this idea that. Well, I think there's a, I mean, there is a tradition of socialist thought that goes back to Friedrich Engels that says that markets are just chaos. You talk about, and socialists still do this a bit, you talk about the law of the jungle and you think that markets are essentially inefficient. And that's not, a, that's not actually a very impressive um, argument on the, from the point of view of us uh, socialists, and I think that Mises had a very good response, which was that markets do are orderly, but they're orderly in this paradoxical way that they don't have anyone who runs them. The order emerges, I think you might say, rather as order emerges through natural selection in Darwinian theory. It arises without anybody having any conception in advance of what the order is going to be. And it's that open-endedness of markets that Mises praised, and that was the big point that I think Hayek felt indebted to Mises for for the rest of his life. And it's an idea that, that Hayek himself developed, didn't he? That after he'd So he left Vienna for London in 1931, went to the London School of Economics and he argued with Keynes famously and he it was an essay economics and knowledge where he developed this idea that you've you've been talking about yes and i think the and the thing that that struck me as really interesting about him i must say i mean before i got this assignment i didn't know anything really about um hayek so it's been a journey of discovery for me we tend to think of neoliberalism as having a theory of markets where everything is perfect and where everyone can tell exactly what's happening. And Hayek's argument is exactly the opposite. The point about markets is that they take advantage of the fact that most knowledge is local. Most people don't know what's going on you know, beyond their daily life. Um, and that somehow that, that what um, markets do is that they capitalize on this mutual ignorance. Markets communicate information. That's to say, you know, if you notice that the that the the crumpets are uh, 
cheaper than the croissants, then you will be motivated. And that, you get little messages through the market, but you'd never have, hardly ever have, a view of what's going on on the whole. I mean, the economist tries to have that, but the real knowledge that economists ought to be interested in is not the kind of knowledge that um, that economists have, but the kind of knowledge that ordinary individuals have. I mean, he says somewhere, it might be very important in a firm that someone remembers that there's a stash of paper in the cupboard under the stairs. And that sort of utterly local knowledge, knowledge that can't be aggregated. And he was, he was interested in that. Well, he uses this very good phrase. He's not a very good phrase monger on the whole, but he takes up, you know, Adam Smith talked about the division of labor as being the characteristic of market economies, that's to say that different people specialise in different kinds of work and it becomes more efficient as a result of that. Hayek's phrase is the division of knowledge, that markets uh, are, are, um, are driven by the fact that knowledge is divided, the fact that no one knows everything, but everyone knows a little something, and markets um, bring them together and create a kind of harmony out of that which um, which none of the individuals involved have any conception of, but which emerges from their individual initiatives. And as you, you put it in the piece, you say markets are a, a device for pooling our ignorance, which seems a very a very neat, neat way of putting it. This insight into that, that the market can know things which no person in the market or out of it can know. And this was the, the basis of his argument against economic planning, is that because anyone who tries to make an economic plan is bound to get it wrong because they can never know enough. Whereas if we leave it to the market, the market, through this self-organising way, knows more than a planner can. Yes, that's absolutely right. But there's, there's also the element of time that, you know, you might be able to plan for next week, but uh, or, you know, decide what to eat for breakfast tomorrow. But if you're thinking of long-term plans, big plans, like building a factory or something, if you don't have the clues that markets give you in terms of prices and also rates of interest and wages and so on, you won't have a clue what kind of factory to build, how big it should be and where it should be. And so you will end up um, getting stuck... You will end up paralysing the economy. I think that's his main point. The wonderful thing about markets, according to Hayek, and I think he has a point, is that they are infinitely adaptable. And the trouble with planning... Well, he had a complete caricature of of planning. Both Mises and Hayek um, assumed that, that, that socialism... They even defined socialism as being... Uh, whether the state plans everything and nobody is allowed to take any initiative at all. And I think from that, if that's your definition of socialism, then it's not very difficult to conclude that socialism's not very likely to work or not for very long. And I think it was, in a way, it was a... It was a it, they were very lucky that the Soviet Union developed as it did and did indeed become... Uh, something of a tyranny and well something of a tyranny a tyranny and an enemy of of liberal values because that did more or less accidentally give make it look as though they'd been um, they'd had an a, an extraordinary prophetic insight into the consequences of socialism and i think you might argue that actually the experience of the of the soviet union was an, an, an unusual and unique one rather than 
uh, the fate of anything that could claim to be socialist. I mean, he developed these arguments, I mean, it's sort of skipping ahead slightly here, but in his book, The Road to Serfdom, which he wrote during the Second World War, you know, he got to move to Cambridge, and in many ways he had he had quite a nice war, as far as I get the sense from, from your piece that he... Yes, he loved it. I mean, he, he became a patriotic Englishman. He talked about our English values. I mean, he was... Um, and he was he was born in Austria, and and I think his 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 natural language was was Austrian German throughout his life. Though he, his English did become pretty good, but he did like to think of himself as an English gentleman. And the chance when when LSE, where he was employed, was evacuated to Cambridge. I mean, he'd he, you know, he'd gone to heaven. He he Keynes was very sweet to him, although. Hayek was pretty rude to Keynes, and and he invited him to these grand dinners in King's College, and he just thought it was the most wonderful thing in the world. So John Maynard Keynes, who's I mean, they did have this, these arguments at Cambridge, and they'd had them before the nineteen thirties. That and that very crudely, Hayek is on the side of leave everything to the markets, and Keynes is there are times when the state has to intervene in the economy. Yes, that's the that was that, if you like is is the headline that you would get from. Uh, road to serfdom that it was it was a sort of mischievous book because it came out in 1944 and by that time very much it was about Britain it was published in England it was about Britain and there was a considerable consensus at the time that that the country that Britain needed to rebuild itself after the war and that it would rebuild itself with uh, unemployment insurance and a national health service and maybe minimum wages and things. And Hayek's uh, road to serfdom landed like a hand grenade in the midst of that more or less benign consensus that was emerging. And he was understood by many people, for example, by George Orwell, who wrote a rather negative review of, of the book as wanting to destroy all those things which uh, the British people were beginning to agree would make the world a better place after the war. But in fact, it's, it is a surprisingly socialistic book. I mean, Keynes wrote to him and said, uh, what you say is very true that, um, that, that state uh, intervention uh, should not be allowed to go too far. But the trouble is that you don't tell us how much how far it would have to go for it to have gone too far. And he does actually, I think people will be astonished by this. I was astonished by this. He talks about the, the, how it's a good idea to have um, national insurance, how it's a good idea to have a minimum wage, how some kind of um, unemployment um, uh, uh, subsidy for the unemployed, uh, anything to prevent people becoming hopelessly poor. I mean, in many ways, it was a, a fairly... Uh, I mean, if socialism means uh, Soviet communism, then it was definitely not that. But it wasn't that far from various um, various notions that were being uh, marketed as socialism at the time. Uh, and I, I, it, it seems to me quite extraordinary that the book has um, has, has 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 been. Well, people have assumed that they know what's in the book without reading it. He himself said that, and that people were. He got used to talking to people who seemed to know what was in the book better than he did, although they hadn't read it. Um, And I think there's a great deal of truth in that. And there have been some um, 
liberal free marketeers who have sort of twigged to that and have, um, well, Mises himself accused um, Hayek of of giving way to socialism, and uh, and since then some. Uh, Right-wing nutcases in America have started talking about Hayekian socialism as as the evil that that threatens them. So, the book is actually infinitely more ambivalent than you would think if you just read the headlines. There was this Reader's Digest edition that was published in the United States and that became a bestseller, and presumably that is is much less subtle than than the full version. It's much less subtle and it also introduces um, surreptitiously a little thing about socialism being anti-Christian which I think, I mean, Hayek was a non-believer all the way down, I think. No, he, he, he would not have agreed. And, you know, even even more surprising than this, the massive publicity. I mean, Reader's Digest had millions of readers. So he, he did become enormously famous as a result of this condensation. There was also a, a set of, I think, 15 cartoons that were produced in, a, in, a, in another magazine and then which were published separately. General Motors distributed these, um, these cartoons, which are a picture of um, people gradually succumbing to socialism. And it ends up with them all being killed by a firing squad because that's the... Um, you can see why General Motors might have been happy to sponsor that cartoon version. Which didn't include the stuff about the minimum wage, presumably. Not at all, be, yes. not at all. Absolutely not. No, it was... It was. I mean, he did have this line which has um, some plausibility to it in the light of the history of the Soviet Union that that uh, that a socialist state is liable to treat its citizens as if they were an army and that they just had to obey orders. So that was that was the bit that uh, that was picked up in Reader's Digest and in these General Motors cartoons. Before that happened in the US, if we come back to, to Britain, that in the, the 1945 election, Hayek would have been the first to accept that during a war, you have to have a planned economy, you have to have an economy on a war footing. So the question is, what do we do when the war's finished? How do we manage the peace? Churchill and Attlee took very different positions on that, but also took very different positions on Hayek, that they sort of both seemed to accept the, the caricatured version. And Attlee, while arguing for the, the Labour manifesto, we've won the war, now let's win the peace and the welfare station, all the rest of it, you say that he emphasised Hayek's foreignness as a way to make people mistrust him, which seems... Well, it seems to me, I mean, he did refer to him. He says, you know, Professor Friedrich August von Hayek, the Austrian economist, and I thought, come on, Clement, you don't really don't need to. That's laying it on a bit thick. Um, and, you know, a foreign academic. Well, and I, I'm not sure how much effect Hayek had on, on the Conservative Party. But certainly there's a very famous speech that Winston Churchill made a month or so before the 1945 election. Here it says, my friends, I must tell you that a socialist policy is abhorrent to the British ideas of freedom. Socialism is inseparably interwoven with totalitarianism and the abject worship of the state. No socialist system can be established without a political police. They would have to fall back on some form of Gestapo. The Labour government would have to fall back on some sort of Gestapo. No doubt very humanely directed in the first instance. That's very Hayek-inspired. And I think the, I mean, the puzzle about Hayek is that he did indeed hold the most extraordinarily crazy right-wing views. He, you know, he wanted to bomb Argentina. He thought Pinochet was a, 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 
a beacon of freedom. Um, but I think, I think as often happens with with e- e- economists, their political views and their economic theory aren't quite as closely related as they um, as they imagine. They like to think that they have that their economic views that their political views follow from their economic theory but i think that uh, the revelation that came to me while i was writing this piece is that you could if hayek had been a different kind of person if he hadn't had such a snappy and difficult personality he might have turned out to be yes a bit actually a bit labor party ish um and uh and or or even quite hippie because he's you know his his emphasis was in a sense, you could translate it into being small is beautiful, and that's why the overarching state is something that we should avoid at all costs. I mean, there is also the, the way in which people's ideas can change and, but also calcify or become caricatures of themselves. That by the time he was <clears throat> recommending bombing Argentina, that was after he'd won the Nobel Prize, it's not clear that the those more surprising bits in The Road to Serfdom that he wrote in 1944. I mean, it's one of the things about this book, it only covers up to 1950, sort of as were the first, slightly more than the first half of his life. And if his story finished there, those of us who know that Margaret Thatcher was a big fan and that he, as you say, admired Pinochet, which shows if you try too hard to avoid the road to serfdom, you can go down a very, very dark road, which takes you to a, <laughs> to a very dark place indeed. We might have a different view of him if the story finished where this book finishes. I'm not sure. I mean, he. I think he was always given to right-wing rants and to um I'd, and when he first attacked Keynes Keynes said why is he so emotional um he seems to have got some bee in his bonnet and it, it means that he hates me but he couldn't really see and I think it's true there was a sort of he had a he had a he had a right he was born with <laughs> if there's such a thing with a right-wing personality um and I think that was evident uh all along, in a way, and that I'm not sure that he really realised that his that his theory of markets, his theory of, of like, as I put it, small is beautiful, didn't necessarily point in the direction that he wanted it to. I mean, you say that he was uh, opposed to to nationalism, but that whole the, the small is beautiful, the local that that can very quickly lead to a sort of little England nationalist. That's that's perfectly true. I, but. That's true, and I think there is actually a very interesting section in the in the Road, Road to Serfdom, where he says that um, socialism is building up problems for itself because if you did have a country where everybody was guaranteed a good standard of living, then it would make it very easy for um, well the, that would provide a hotbed for nationalism chauvinism, racism and anti-Semitism because people would think, well, we've paid to build up this prosperous socialist society and we don't want any foreigners coming in who haven't made any contribution to it and helping themselves to um, to the wealth that we've created. And it does seem to me that there is indeed that that sort of underground passage that connects socialism or at least socialism in one country um, with quite sinister um, nationalist and xenophobic politics. Yeah, and as we see well, throughout Europe today, the idea that anti, anti-immigration anti feeling is that, and there's people who say, 
suspects foreigners are wanting to come and sponge off the welfare state and so on that there is that idea that this is this is ours and other people aren't entitled to it but then that is a problem with socialism in one country isn't it that if you take an internationalist sort of when the socialist international would have would have agreed that that's a problem and that you know and that's a reason why socialism has to be an international movement i guess so but i i do think that that socialists who rejected the book in 1944 should have paid a bit more attention to the passage about the dangers of, of populism and xenophobia because it seems to me that is a, it is a, a genuine insight of his um, that there is a danger there that needs to be guarded against. So after the war in 1947 he founded the Mont Pelerin Society which is still exists today as a Hayekian Misesian body. Yes, as, 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 a, as, as, a, as a group that, that that defends the idea that uh, freedom depends on that liberal freedoms depend on free markets. I think that's the the basic idea of it. And it's um, I don't know. It I think it has gone. A, I, I'm not sure how much. It's become much more political, and I I, I I haven't followed the history of it. But there is people like Enoch Powell became members of it, who were you know not not ser- at, at the beginning it was serious economic theorists. Um, it, but what they all had in common was that they thought that the socialist dismissal of markets as irrational and anarchic was totally wrong because markets were actually a source of order. Although, as I've already said, of the special kind of order that arises without anybody having conceived of it in advance. I mean, the other things about them is this idea that this, this apparent contrast, a conflict between state planning and free markets is that for a market to function freely, I mean, as you've already mentioned, it's very easy for a market to be rapidly hijacked by by cartels, by people who, who have more money, or as it were, very crudely, if you sort of the imaginary marketplace, sort of a small marketplace, if some people come in with guns and say, if you don't buy our stuff at twice the price, we're going to shoot you. Obviously, the market is no longer free. So that so in order to maintain a free market, you have to have a, a strong state, <laughs> a, a, a strong state, exactly, to impose a legal structure. But so was their argument that the power of the state should be limited to maintaining the conditions that allow a free market to flourish? I don't know what the policy of the, the official policy of the Mont Pelerin Society is, but I would have thought it would go in. I would go in. Well, not the Mont Pelerin Society, sorry, no, but in terms of but the, the, Hayek, the Hayek's position, is it not the... Um, Yes, I mean Hayek is is very emphatic that you need to have uh, that the state needs to be there to maintain uh, fairness in the market and to make sure that there are rules which are universal rules, proper, legally valid rules, and not rules that favour one party or ra- rather than another. So in that in that respect, I mean, I think he was he was a. Mu- I suppose what I discovered is that in some ways he's a much more progressive th- thinker than he ever realised. But he had this, as you put it, a preoccupation with intellectual history and particularly with the allure and persistence of bad ideas. So one of the reasons presumably why he got so rude to Keynes and would get sort of this idea that, that bad ideas needed exposing and rooting out. And one of those, the ideas that he didn't he didn't like or took against is the idea that economics was a science. Is this right that he took against? Well, depends what you mean by science. I mean, he did. What he he did. I hadn't realised this, but he he was he pioneered the use of the word scientism as a term of abuse. And I mean, what he meant by scientism is the idea that 
um, all science is like physics and that uh, the social sciences will only succeed if they start treating human beings not as if they were conscious people with free will, but as if they were machines that are m manipulated by external forces so that economics should aspire to become a science like physics. And he said, and no, he did, he was very happy to call economics a science, but what made it scientific was something completely different from what made physics scientific. What made it scientific was that it understood the logic of indi individual human action and how individual human actions can come together to produce consequences that are unintended, but which nevertheless are somehow a result of all the individual actions. So his idea of economics was that it is a, a science, but one that depends on, on subjectivity. It's about the inner life of human beings. And what he hated was the idea that, that, that the, the, the scientific idea that the inner life of human beings could be explained on the same sort of principles as um, as, uh, as as physics describes the inner life of atoms. Right, and that's one of the reasons that, again, that we come back to this idea that planning can't work is because it's not predictive. There are some sciences, for example, physics, which the aim is to be able to predict the movement of... Well, you know when Halley's Comet is next going to appear in the sky. That's predictable, but economics doesn't have that power and i think yes because human in beings in general are capable of surprising uh, us and indeed surprising themselves every one of us can surprise ourselves and there's no way you can contain that within well i think economic theory contains that because it shows how individual uh, economic decisions interact but that doesn't mean it can predict what direction the economy is going to go because i mean that depends what someone's going to invent next week and if, it, if we knew what it was going to be we would already have invented it um i think he well, another thing that interested me was that i think he did have a very definite kind of school of thought in mind when he was at the london school of economics he came across various left-wing scientists i mean in particular um Lancelot Hogburn, but uh, there was a whole bunch of them, uh, J.B.S. Haldane and Hyman Levy, uh, Joseph Needham, J.D. Bernal, who were scientists and communists, or yes, more or less communists, and who thought that it was the same thing. They believed in socialism because they believed in engineering, and they believed that a socialist society would be built by experts in much the same way that a bridge is built by expert engineers. And he and, and Hayek, I think quite rightly, um, thought that there was something deeply sinister about this socialist cult of scientific expertise. Um, and of course, I think a lot of people who would, who would call themselves socialists now would be as, um, as opposed to this kind of scientific scientific socialism of the 1930s as Hayek was skipping a bit about in time a bit here but these way these ways that he gets grouped with people who perhaps he shouldn't be shouldn't be grouped with one of those I know this book finishes in 1950 but you talk a bit about his life after that that he he moved to Chicago which of course is famous because it, for Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of of neoliberal economics and Milton Friedman was of course at that first meeting of the of the Montpelier Society but Hayek wasn't actually, even though he was at the University of Chicago, he wasn't 
in the economics department and he wasn't part of Milton Friedman's circle, as it were. Yes, and I think um, and Mises also went went to America, where he became he joined forces with the really, I think, totally mad pro capitalist thinker Ayn Rand, who thought that uh, that intellectuals going on about socialism were misleading the masses. She was a kind of she was a bit of a a, a proto Trump kind of character, but Ayn Rand thought the great thing about capitalism was that it shows you exactly what's going on, and. Hayek's view was kind of the opposite, that um, capitalism flourishes because no one ever knows what's, what's, what's going on. And she, thought, and she thought that he was poisonous and that he, was a, you know, he, he betrayed the cause of capitalism to the socialists. Um, and he uh, despised her very heartily. So I think it's quite important to notice that I don't know how it happened at, 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 on a personal level, but there was... Mises and Hayek are often yoked together as, you know, the Austrian theorists of markets who thought that markets were superior to socialism. But, and that description is true, they did have that much in common, but they also had a great deal against uh, against each other. And, and, and Mises, yes, he, he, he did actually walk out of the founding meeting of the Montpellier Society, denouncing Hayek and his friends as as, as socialists. Which just goes to how, show how what a strange thing uh, economics is. Those divisions continued long after that. Margaret Thatcher, supposedly at an early cabinet meeting, she pulled out a book of Hayek's and said to her assembled cabinet colleagues, this gentleman is what we believe. She asked his advice and he thought she was very beautiful and was very taken with her. But as you say, he had to keep reminding her that he was a liberal, not a conservative. Yes, and absolutely not a nationalist. Yes, it's true. I mean, but I think it's it's. I suppose you could say he was a he was he was obviously a very weird human being. I think he was extremely insecure, and he was very prone to flattery. I mean, the way he loved being taken to King's College by Keynes, and then, and then being invited to meet Margaret, and then the day he met the Queen. Uh, towards the end of his life, that was the best day of his life, um, and in a way, well, it's rather sweet in a way. But he was incredibly, I think, personally inept and naive, um, and uh, he was, and he seemed to have very little capacity for working out what the true implications of his ideas were. In terms of his his personal relationships, this castle point of nineteen fifty is partly because that's when he went to America, but it's also that he apparently out of the blue announced to his wife that he was leaving her for her cousin and he went off to America to get a quick divorce and this I, I think everybody was absolutely astonished that and and I, I mean I don't know if it was in character or out of character I think what was in character about it was that he didn't really realize that his wife and his uh, and his then teenage children would think there was anything wrong with him uh, getting rid of them and starting a, starting a different life. He seemed to have just um, his capacity for blindness about human beings was um, uh, tremendous. Which perhaps casts a slightly different light on his idea that human behaviour is unpredictable, and that's why markets are unpredictable because we can never know what what other people are feeling or thinking that it may be that he had <laughs> he had less capacity for that than some other people may do but i don't know it's an interesting speculation jonathan ray thank you very much 
You can read Jonathan's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Andrew O'Hagan on Prince Harry, Maureen McLean on HD, and Sheila Fitzpatrick on Border Crossings. If you have thoughts about this episode or any other, please email us at podcasts at lrb.co.uk. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.